Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 90, Freedom of the Greeks. The defeat of Philip V at the Battle of Kynos Kephali in 197 BC was a major blow to Macedonia not felt in generations, as nearly 13,000 troops were either killed or sold into slavery. The king could no longer offer any further resistance to the victorious Roman general, Titus Quinctius Flamininus, and so the time had come to offer up terms. After Philip escaped the battle, he rounded up survivors and fled from Macedonia, making sure to dispatch agents to the Thessalian city of Larissa to burn any official documents that were left behind that could have been used as leverage. When Flamininus arrived in Larissa, an ambassador of the king requested a truce of 15 days to compose his remaining army and proceed with peace talks, which the consul granted. At Larissa, representatives of the anti-Macedonian alliance had come together to determine the fate of the kingdom. Those like King Amenander of Athamania and the Aetolian delegate argued that Philip was too dangerous to be left alive, that should the Romans allow him to retain the throne, he would wreak vengeance upon the rest of Greece as soon as the Senate turned its attention away. Flamininus pushed back against the proposal, explaining that Rome did not wage war to exterminate its enemies without the possibility of reconciliation, as was clearly demonstrated with their treatment of the Carthaginians after the war with Hannibal. From a practical point of view, destabilizing Macedonia would leave Greece open to the invasion of Thracians and Celts that the king otherwise kept at bay. He did promise, though, that the terms he offered were going to be anything but light, and would prevent the Antigonid ruler from causing further mischief. Soon afterwards, the Roman commander and the king met on the outskirts of Tempe to discuss terms. Philip accepted all the penalties laid upon him, and he offered to adhere to demands laid out at the Conference of Nicaea. While the decision had to be ratified by the Senate, Flamininus proposed that the king pay an indemnity of 400 silver talents, 200 given up front as a deposit that was to be returned if the peace talks fell through. He was also to hand over his son Demetrius, along with a number of other Macedonian nobles as hostages in Rome. The king agreed, for he had little choice in the matter, and the mission was dispatched to the Senate for their approval. A four-month truce was set up, and none too soon. News of Philip's defeat at Kynos Kephali had made its way to the Dardanians, who launched an invasion into Macedonia shortly afterwards. He managed to summon an emergency levy and drive back the Dardanians with whatever army he could scrounge together, a ray of hope in an otherwise dark period for the kingdom. By the end of 197, the Senate received news of Flamininus's victory and proposed treaty, and so they dispatched ten commissioners to journey across the Adriatic to iron out the final details probably arriving in the consul's winter quarters at Elatea in early 196. With the security of Italy once again restored, a new task was at hand. What was to be done with Philip and the rest of Greece? The destruction of the Antigonid house was not on the table, and the Senate had no interest in permanently occupying Greece. Humiliating him and forcing him to acknowledge Rome's supremacy? Certainly but they needed to make arrangements to extricate themselves from further Greek affairs without leaving unresolved issues that would breed more warfare. Flamininus and the commission were the arbitrators of the decision, but it is likely that Greek advisors such as the Achaean strategos Aristanus offered a guiding hand on how to understand the politics of the region and employ the appropriate diplomatic language to sell their plans. A final decision was made. 
with regards to the king, the terms were to be as follows. Philip was to surrender all Greek cities under his control and withdraw his garrisons. Any and all Roman prisoners of war and deserters were to be returned. He was to pay an indemnity of 1,000 talents, with half up front and the other half paid in annual installments for a decade. All of his navy, barring five light vessels and a great warship, were to be surrendered. Lastly, the king's son Demetrius, along with other Macedonian nobles, were to remain in Rome as hostages to ensure his good behavior. It was a heavy cost, but not an unreasonable one. Philip had been allowed to keep his crown, the Republic did not impose any garrisons in the cities, and he still controlled a formidable chunk of his kingdom north of Mount Olympus. As part of the terms laid out before Philip, perhaps the most important one was the order that the Greek cities of both Europe and Asia were to be freed and given their autonomy. This was a significant step to take, as I shall explain momentarily, but it was debated how exactly this would be done. Flamininus argued that the complete evacuation of Greece was the best move, that the goodwill of the Greeks was a worthy reward to ask by this display of magnanimity. For their assistance in the war, the Achaeans would receive their long-sought prize of Corinth, but the Romans would continue to occupy the fetters of the Acro-Corinth, Chalcis, and Demetrius as they oversaw the transition. In the summer of 196, thousands of persons from all over the Greek world made a pilgrimage to Corinth, where the biennial Isthmian Games were taking place. Joining them was Flamininus and the Roman Commission, which made many in attendance nervous as they anxiously awaited to hear the final decision that was inevitably going to be read out. During an interval between competitions, a bugler stepped forward and blasted his horn, earning the silence of the crowd. With their full attention secured, the herald stepped up to the platform and made his announcement. Quote, the Senate of Rome and Titus Quinctius, proconsul and imperator, having conquered King Philip and the Macedonians in war, declare the following peoples free, without garrison or tribute, in full enjoyment of the laws of their respective countries, namely, Corinthians, Phocians, Locrians, Eubians, Achaeans of Phthiotis, Magnesians, Thessalians, and Parabians. End quote. The attendees could scarcely believe what they just heard. As they chatted excitedly amongst each other, the herald was brought back to the stage to repeat his message, and when he shouted it loud enough so all could hear, the entire stadium leapt to their feet and erupted into a mass of cheers. Plutarch claimed the noise was so great that it knocked out birds flying overhead. Forgetting about the athletic competitions entirely, the mob set themselves upon Flamininus, wishing to touch the hands of their savior and toss him garlands of flowers out of gratitude. Even the sheer mass of the crowd threatened the proconsul's life before he was able to excuse himself to his tent. But the adulation showered upon him was undoubtedly the finest moment of his 33 years. In Polybius's eyes, the general sense of jubilation and thanks given to the commander was appropriate, and he expresses it in no uncertain terms. Quote, for that the Romans and their leader Flamininus should have deliberately incurred unlimited expense and danger for the sole purpose of freeing Greece deserved their admiration, and it was also a great thing that their power was equal to their intention. But the greatest thing of all is that fortune foiled their attempt by none of her usual caprices, but that every single thing came to a successful issue at the same time, so that all Greeks, Asiatic and European alike, were by a single proclamation become free without garrison or tribute and enjoying their own laws. End quote. 
Based on the scale of the responses, it would seem that the policy put forward by the Romans was groundbreaking in the history of Greece, which had for nearly 200 years been subject to the yoke of the Hellenistic monarchies. However, what exactly did freedom, Eleutheria in Greek and Libertas in Latin, mean for the Greek cities? In fact, freedom and autonomy was a slogan that long predated the Roman intervention. Virtually all of the kings had used it as justifications for wars of conquest or as a bribe to encourage alliances with city-states, going back from the death of Alexander to the present day. Philip's own ancestors, Antigonus I Monophthalmus and Demetrius I Polyarchides, were something of pioneers in this regard, but were not alone in its use. However, promises of ungarrisoned settlements or remission of tribute fell by the wayside as the kings would cynically renege on their claims. The Romans do not appear to have used it as a casus belli prior to 196, so it stands to reason that Flamininus was influenced by his Greek advisors when formulating his proclamation. Unlike the Macedonian rulers, the Senate would keep their word, and Rome would soon try to extricate itself from direct oversight in Greece to lead them to their own devices. It was a win-win. Since the Greeks regained their self-determination, Flamininus received the honors he craved, and the Senate felt a degree of security knowing that Philip was no longer active in the area, allowing the legions to return back to Italy without further oversight. Flamininus himself celebrated his victory by dedicating a shield and a golden wreath to the sanctuary of Delphi, along with an inscription explaining how a son of Aeneas delivered freedom to the Greeks, which hints at the prestige factor gained from such a decision. We also need to look at it from the Greek point of view. The Romans had earned a reputation for ruthlessness during the First Macedonian War, which could be used as a weapon against Macedonia, but there was a deep fear that they simply would replace Philip as their new overlord. Yet, the Ismian proclamation was couched in terminology long recognized in the Hellenistic period, and, most importantly, it appeared to be genuine. For the first time since the victory of Philip II at Chaeronea, the peninsula was no longer under the heel of the Macedonian kings, and it was all thanks to the Roman Republic. A handful of gold coins that were minted in Greece during this period have been discovered, bearing the portrait of Flamininus on the obverse, and the goddess Victory on the reverse, with the inscription T. Quinci. We're not sure who minted them, but it is reasonable to assume that they were intended to commemorate the consul's victory at Kainos Kephali and or the Ismian proclamation. These are also remarkable from the perspective of Roman numismatics, since up to that point, no Roman, living or dead, had ever had their portrait depicted on currency before, and they predate those of Sulla and Julius Caesar by over a century. Given that associations with monarchism were antithetical to Roman political thought, the engravers made sure to remove any royal iconography like the diadem, opting instead for a simple bearded visage. When Flamininus was allowed to hold his triumph in 194, it lasted three days as he displayed all of the goods seized from his conquest. Over 18,000 pounds of silver, over 3,500 pounds of gold, and nearly 100,000 gold and silver coins dazzled witnesses. Shields, armor, and pikes plundered from the dead Macedonian troops were carried forth in great numbers as well. A cult statue of Zeus was seized from Macedonia and placed in the Capitoline Temple, symbolizing the divine approval of Rome's mission. Last but not least was the crown prince Demetrius, paraded in front of Flamininus' chariot as it traveled throughout the city streets, a final humiliating reminder of Philip's submission to the might of the Republic.
stopped here, it might be considered something of a storybook ending, but the Roman peacekeeping efforts would be hampered almost immediately thereafter. For the most part, the Ismian Decree and the Accord with Philip was widely accepted by the Greeks, all except the Aetolian League, that is. Despite their alliances during the First and Second Macedonian War, a rift steadily grew between the Republic and the League over a number of grievances both petty and serious. During the Battle of Kynoscephalae, the Aetolians took the opportunity to plunder the king's camp as the Romans were out hunting for Philip and other survivors, which angered the legionaries who felt that they deserved the lion's share for their hard-earned victory. Both Polybius and Plutarch allege that the Aetolians also claim most of the credit for the defeat of the Macedonians, relegating the proconsul to second fiddle as they celebrated the bravery of the Aetolian warriors in their songs and epigrams. For someone as prideful as Flamininus, this disrespect causes blood to boil. The Aetolians had also been the most vocal about having Philip executed, but Flamininus made it a point to entirely dismiss their input on the decision, partially due to his wounded ego, but also to prevent the Aetolians from becoming the dominant power of Greece. This insult was even more clear when the consul rejected their request to be handed a number of captured Thessalian cities during the talks with Philip at Tempe. The Aetolian delegate pointed out that, as per the terms of the alliance set up during the First Macedonian War, all Greek cities taken in the fighting were to be transferred to the League. Flamininus coldly reminded him that this alliance in all of its terms had been dissolved when the Aetolians chose to independently make peace with Philip in 206. Our sources point to this refusal as the breaking point, when the Aetolians decided to focus on undermining the Roman peace. They openly slandered Flamininus's policies, claiming that while the consul had unshackled the foot of Greece, he replaced it with a collar around their neck instead. There were also hiccups in the post-war arrangements. An incident during the winter of 197-196 saw a pro-Macedonian official named Bracales elected to Boeotarch, making him the head of the Boeotian League. When Philip returned Boeotian troops that were conscripted under his service, Bracales gave a public display of thanks to the king, despite the exchange being facilitated by the actions of Flamininus, who ordered Philip to do so. Members of the pro-Roman faction of the League brought news of this to the proconsul, who either authorized or at least implicitly allowed these officials to have Bracales assassinated. In retaliation for the murder and what they perceived to be as a plot fostered by the proconsul, 500 Romans were killed by angry Thebans. Flamininus almost declared open war on Thebes, but a delegation of Athenian and Achaean officials stopped the outbreak of further violence, and a fine of 30 towns was placed on the Boeotian League instead. Though the proconsul did not pursue the matter further, it does reveal how despite the talk of freedom, they were not above striking out against those who dared threaten to undermine their position in Greece. We also find trouble in the southern Peloponnese, as Nabus of Sparta was still on the loose. A man who seized power following the death of the tyrant Machanidas during the First Macedonian War, Nabus is subject to immense scorn in the works of Polybius, who speaks of political violence and brutality inflicted against his opposition. It has been suggested that Nabus modeled himself on his predecessors August IV and Cleomenes III, who introduced reforms to Sparta to regain some of its former glory. To what extent these reforms ever occurred is debated, but Sparta's resurgence under his rule is evident, given his ability to wage war against the Achaean League, continuing the grudge that had been started in Cleomenes' time. As we recall, Nabus betrayed Philip V after being given Argos, 
and in turn supported Rome against the Macedonian king by sending a small number of troops to Kynos Kephali. With Philip defeated, the Spartan leader managed to escape the war with mastery over the Argives at little to no cost of his own. But it remained a sticking point to the Romans, who felt that with his bolstered position in the Peloponnese, he simply would follow Cleomenes' path and launch an invasion into the rest of Greece as soon as the legions landed back in Italy. In 195, the Senate sent a message to Flamininus authorizing him to declare war on Sparta, lest Nabus threatened to destroy the balance of power. An authorization to wage war is different from actually declaring it, and the proconsul met with the delegates from the leading states of Greece asking their opinion on the matter. Almost everyone expressed their support, making it a pan-Hellenic war against the would-be Spartan Empire. The Achaeans were especially passionate about contributing, as they had already dealt with Nabus' aggression in the years prior and wanted to curb such ambitions before they became too large to deal with. Not to mention the fact that they would induct Argos into the league once the war was over. Atolia was once again the only exception, and the representative accused the Romans of using Nabus as a scapegoat to justify their continued occupation. This outrage was viewed by the other members as those of a petulant child who didn't get their way and were quickly shut down. In the summer of that year, a Roman Greek invasion force crossed into the southern Peloponnese. The Achaean troops laid siege to Argos while Flamininus led his army to attack Sparta itself, and were supported by Rhodian and Pergamene fleets attacking the coastline. To his credit, Nabus did not back down from the fight despite being totally outnumbered, but his army was dealt with a crushing defeat not too far from Silesia, where Cleomenes and his Spartans were defeated by Antigonus Doson nearly 30 years before. Roman and Achaean troops crossed the Eurotas River unopposed, laying waste to the Laconian countryside and capturing several towns until Nabus sent out a messenger, asking to discuss terms. During the meeting, Nabus argued against the charges that he illegally seized control of Argos and the accusations of being a tyrant, in the negative sense of the word, instead of a legitimate king. Flamininus would have none of it, and ordered that he evacuate Argos and any of his territory outside of Laconia. The treaty also stipulated that he was no longer able to wage war without approval, and stripped of his navy, among various other arrangements with Spartan exiles. Like with Philip, the Greek allies protested against the Roman decision and pushed for the proconsul to have Nabus killed or permanently removed from power. Livy states that the proconsul was mainly concerned about the amount of time and resources it would take to lay siege to Sparta, thus diverting him away from a major threat looming from the east not to mention that destabilizing Sparta would gain them little. Plutarch was a bit more cynical, suggesting that Flamininus was worried that the extension of his command would expire before he could finish the siege, allowing another Roman general to steal his glory. Despite some violent outbursts stirred up by the demagogues, Sparta would sit quietly for at least the immediate future, though this will not be the last adventure of Nabus. Still, his humiliation was complete, and his son ended up being shipped to Rome as a hostage and walking alongside Flaminius's triumph. With Nabus's submission, the Senate felt confident enough to warrant their departure from the Aegean in the spring of 194. In a moment of déjà vu, Flamininus took the opportunity to make another proclamation to his allies in Corinth, announcing that the Romans were to evacuate all of Greece, and that the fetters were to be restored to the Achaeans, the Roman garrisons being withdrawn back to Italy. This was cause for more celebration, and out of gratitude, the Achaeans paid for the ransoming of Roman slaves that had been taken in the Second Punic War and shipped off to Greece. 
Flamininus and his troops marched back through Epirus and crossed the Adriatic back to Rome, where he celebrated his victories with a spectacular triumph that was accompanied by those very same emancipated Romans. As we have seen, the conduct of the Romans seems to have followed much of the same pattern as their behavior in Illyria and the Greek states prior to this post-war period. There appears to be no intention to establish any sort of lasting Roman presence in the peninsula, no hegemony established or demand for tribute. Philip and Nabus were humbled by the might of the legions and paid dearly for their transgressions, but Flamininus and the Roman Senate allowed them to both retain their positions, albeit with a reduced capacity to wage war, much to the protestation of their own allies. This may partially be attributed to notions of clemency, but Rome's interest is primarily to maintain a status quo where no one power dominates Greece, and avoiding any power vacuum from inflicting further chaos that could drag the Republic back into Greek politics. Despite this, Flamininus had been quite respectful of the Greeks. The Ismian Declaration had been made using terminology that agreed with Hellenic political sensibilities, allies had been consulted on matters of war and peace, and by 194, the Romans were about to honor their word and evacuate the long-held fetters. Propagandizing aside, it is clear that the Republic was considered to be the ultimate authority of what transpired in Greece. Roman officials made and approved the peace treaties, crushed anyone who dared threaten them or the peace they were looking to impose, and even resorted to approving assassination plots. They may not have wanted to stay in Greece, but they certainly liked being celebrated as its savior, and now they had functionally replaced Macedonia as the spearhead of a larger Greek coalition. The propaganda value of these actions lined up with their foreign policy, as the delivery of Greek freedom coincided with the security of the Republic's eastern flanks. For all his philhellenic tastes, Flamininus was happy to humiliate Macedonia and Sparta in his triumph, and reinforce the dominance of Roman power above all others. Not all were happy with the arrangement laid out by the Republic, the most vocal being the Aetolians. Our sources stress that they had become outspoken in their anti-Roman attitudes, warning their contemporaries about Rome replacing the Antigonids as their new master. We need to take these criticisms with a heavy grain of salt. The Aetolians historically had been consistently aggressive against their neighbors as they sought to expand their power. They were not mad that Rome was in charge. They felt slighted over being cut out from what they believed to be their share of the spoils after Philip's defeat. Yet, this animosity would end up being one of the root causes that would draw the Republic back into Greece within only a few years of their departure. Throughout the entire post-war period, an ever-present figure loomed in the background, Antiochus III. Having concluded his war with Ptolemy V Epiphanes, the Syrian king had added more territory to his already massive empire. Flamininus and the Senate had been negotiating and keeping a close eye on the king's actions since the war with Philip was brought to an end hoping that he would stay out of Greece. Yet Antiochus's ambition would not allow him to remain merely content with the whole of Asia under his authority, and he already crossed into Europe to conquer large parts of Thrace. The king's appetite had been whetted, and now the Aetolians were calling upon him to intervene in Greece. Let us pause our narrative here, and when we next meet, we will discuss the lead-up to his war with Rome. Before you go, I just have a couple quick updates to make. Number one, I wanted to thank all of you who have signed up with my Patreon page since launching it this past July. The extra income has been a huge help in acquiring new reading material for upcoming episodes and general show maintenance, so I always appreciate it. Second, I would like to announce my participation in the upcoming Intelligent Speech Conference, which will be taking place on November 4th, 2023. 
I took part in last year's event alongside other talented podcasters, and this year will be no different in that regard. I will have my own presentation, and I will also be taking part in a roundtable discussion on ancient Persia, with Trevor Cully of the History of Persia podcast, and Umberto Molinati and Sariel Snowings of So You Think You Can Rule Persia podcast. Last year was a lot of fun, and I hope to see many of you again this year. Feel free to use the code HELEN, that's with one L, to receive a 10% discount on ticket prices. And I'll make sure to include the link on my website and the show notes for this episode so you can access their materials. Lastly, there might be a slight delay in the next episode, as I will be traveling to Turkey for the end of September. Most of my time will be spent journeying throughout the region of Izmir, where I'll be able to visit major Hellenistic sites like Pergamon, Sardis, Ephesus, and a few others, including a battlefield tour of Magnesia, which will be of utmost help in the next few episodes, so expect those photos to be included in the subsequent episode notes. That's all I have to say for now, so thank you all for listening once again to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>